0: Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 9, Christmas Special 2023. (sighs) You like those, don't you?
1: (laughs) I'm just so happy that we are together in person this time. I don't have COVID. Oh yeah. You don't have COVID. No,
0: We're I didn't mo- have COVID <laughs> two years ago. I just had a cold from hell. Yeah. You've been listening to our advent calendar and listening to how ill I was in that Christmas special, haven't <laughs> yeah. you?
1: I was getting myself in the mood um, for this recording, our sixth sixth ever christmas yes. special which is quite remarkable um and yes we we sound ill <laughs> in lots of those after, lots of those little snippets
0: yeah and the saddest thing is there is a video of last year's one which is just a video <laughs> of me speaking down the line with my back to the camera <laughs> oh. it's the saddest thing ever and the lights go off on be halfway through because there's not enough people in the office never mind here we are ready for our christmas special first one in our shiny new studio if uh, you haven't had a go at watching us then uh, this might be the one because we're going to make full use of our snazzy equipment and our big shiny screen today
1: and we're wearing our Christmas jumpers Tom has put up the Christmas lights I mean what more can you ask for really
0: what more indeed although if you are an audio only person then uh, it will also work
1: yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, well, I should probably describe Tom's Christmas jumper. It's his traditional one. He gets yes. out every year. It doesn't a fest- get much wear, you see. <laughs> It's a festive, music-themed Christmas jumper. I see headphones. I see, oh, I want to say Electric Fender, Stratocasters. Guitars, yes, yes.
0: <laughs> it's all good. Little musical notes. It's uh, my excellent but very grey Christmas jumper. <laughs> and uh, with that, it means it's time for our usual special episode where we bring each other some light items culled from all sorts of sources the only difference being at christmas we up the ante and go for six each for reasons that are lost in the mists of history
1: yeah i think it was like the 12 days of christmas was where it began that's why we ended up yes. with six each but uh, yeah it's just a lot of homework really, <laughs> really and <laughs> i always try and keep it light but um oh, somehow or other sad things happen
0: <laughs> you're just more serious than me I think.
1: maybe, maybe, I've tried to um, I'm going to start with something a little bit more sombre, two, two things two of my first entries okay. are a little bit more sombre um, and then I'll, I'll move on to some more uplifting offers
0: All right, you better go first then <laughs>
1: I, I think I ought to Okay, so, um, many of you will know um, that sadly Benjamin Zephaniah um, died this ah, yes. month um, at the age of 10 age of 65. Um, If you are unfamiliar with Benjamin Zephaniah um, you may uh, be familiar with his poetry um, or if you don't know him at all he's a British writer, a dub poet an actor. Um, He was in Peaky Blinders, you may remember him from that. and also a professor of poetry and creative writing and an activist. And I remember um, seeing him, hearing him and seeing him live speak in Bristol. He's very compelling. Um, and I've got a really nice article from somebody called Ian Cushing, uh, senior lecturer. Ah, in... Ian Cushing. Yeah.
0: We like Ian Cushing around these <laughs> parts. We I do, we still want him on the podcast. Come on, Ian.
1: <laughs> well, Ian Cushing, um, senior lecturer in critical applied linguistics at Manchester. Manchester Metropolitan University has written a very fitting tribute um, but also very fitting to those of you out there in initial teacher education or just teachers more generally. Um, The article um, published in the conversation on the 11th of December this year is entitled Benjamin Zephaniah how the poet's linguistic anarchy and abolitionist politics impacted education and me. So here goes. Like so many others who work in education, I was devastated to hear the news of Benjamin Zephaniah's death. His work has profoundly shaped our understandings of race, language and education. And his work continues to have enormous influence in classrooms around the world. I first encountered Benjamin's writing when I was at a secondary school. When I was at secondary school, our English teacher used his poetry to explore issues of local and global injustices. Like him, she encouraged us all to challenge normative ways of using language and reject the linguistic hierarchies that shape schools. She, like Benjamin, saw teaching as a political act. My school was located in a racially diverse working-class area of a post-industrial town in the north of England. The issues that Benjamin examined, race, whiteness, capitalism, colonialism, injustice, hostile policing, state violence and, of course, language, were so pertinent to us all. He wrote about things that children, parents and teachers alike recognised. For many of the children in that school, Benjamin's work will have been the first time they encountered published literature that was written in a language that represented how they spoke and that talked about the things that mattered to them. This paucity of diverse educational materials continues to this day. By far, the majority of literature that children study in schools is written by white authors. It overwhelmingly features white protagonists and is overwhelmingly written in standard English, a colonial variety of the language that Benjamin outrightly rejected. Benjamin's work, by contrast, is shaped by his anarchist and abolitionist principles. It challenges readers and listeners to examine how language education policy, discipline practices and curricula normalise anti-black linguistic racism. Benjamin's work draws its power from the fact that he refused to separate out issues of language injustice from broader dimensions of social injustice. For him, anti-black language policing was simply part of the same logics of anti-black policing more broadly. His work is part of a long history of black resistance in British policing, which includes the policing of language. His 1996 poetry collection, Proper Propaganda, for example, brought together issues of racist policing black culture, hostile immigration rhetoric, and linguistic colonialism. The opening lines to his poem, Neighbours, captured just that. I am the type you were supposed to fear, black and foreign, big and dreadlocks, an uneducated grass eater. I talk in tongues, I chant at night. My first permanent academic post was in the Department of Education at Brunel University, London, where Benjamin was Professor of Creative Writing. Our offices were in the same building. I will never forget the time that he came to speak to my pre-service English teacher education group, so teacher trainees, mostly made up of students of color from working class backgrounds. He showed up and simply said to the class, what do you want to hear about? Linguistic justice, came their reply. For three hours we sat, captivated listening to his stories and wisdom about anti-black linguistic racism in schools, the criminalisation of black youth in Britain and the colonial histories of standard English. He firmly rejected the mainstream narrative that speaking in standard English is the solution to granting marginalised children justice. Those conversations inspired my students to engage in similar anti-racist efforts in their own teaching. I went on to collaborate with one of my students drawing on Benjamin's ideas. We facilitated workshops with young children where they critiqued ideologies of linguistic prescriptivism and how England's education policies are linguistically oppressive. Years later, Benjamin agreed to collaborate on a research project I led on language and race in schools. Part of the project involved secondary school pupils in London reading his 2020 novel Windrush Child. The teacher used the text as a springboard to encourage the children to examine how language, colonialism, race and discrimination intersect in Britain. As part of the project, we interviewed Benjamin on camera and showed the videos to children in the classroom. They were enthralled. They discussed how their own experiences of schooling have been shaped by whiteness, linguistic standards and colonial curricula. This experience reminded me of my own schooling in the 1990s, of hearing his poetry for the first time and of hearing my teachers talk about language, activism and social injustice. Benjamin had an incredible capacity to talk about complex issues with razor-sharp clarity. He showed how linguistic hierarchies were a product of colonialism and slavery. He rejected any theories of social justice which placed the burden on marginalised communities to modify their language. He was an abolitionist and an anti-colonial activist through and through, rejecting in 2013 an OBE because of its language of empire. Despite his untimely passing, Benjamin's words will continue to push back against the systems and structures of language policing which are so embedded within them. His work is needed more than ever before.
0: Ah, wonderful. And um, we had an article by Ian Cushing, didn't we, the other we day? in One of these, yeah, we about did. the policing of language and standard English.
1: Exactly. And that's why it sort of, um, you know, occurred to me that, you know, this was not only a time to sort of mark and honour um, the life and work of Benjamin Zephaniah, who um, actually inspired a unit of work that I taught in drama back when I was in the classroom and I'm going to talk about that for my next um my next offer um but also a lot to be thought there you know for people who are working with student teachers about you know we we don't do enough maybe I'm speaking of myself really to get experts in from the outside to speak to our students um Every time I do, I think I need to get more of this in, um, to get more voices in, to get them thinking in new different ways. But the other thing that article got me thinking about was how impossible it is to be politically neutral as a teacher. Um, you know, him talking about his uh, secondary English teacher as a sort of political activist through her teaching sort of occurred to me that, you know, that's something that ah, it's an interesting one to toss around in your mind about, you know, whether teachers should allow their politics to influence the way they teach
0: yeah I always had strong views about that as a teacher that I should be very very neutral and I think I I think I uh, naively felt that that education and politics could be separated but as we were talking you know, saying to Dr. Kev the other day, <laughs> they really can't. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah, it's um, it's tricky. But I just thought that 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 article just had so much in it that you you know, we haven't got time to pull out now. But it was an interesting one, um, and obviously very appropriate since we've had some work of Ian's of late.
0: Yes, wonderful, excellent. Yes, we will move on because I think this this episode often runs really rather long. So I will give you my first offering, which is my, I suppose, most serious offering. Uh, it's come from. X or Twitter as we used to call it (laughs) and it comes from Dr Emily McLeod who appears to be an ex teacher who now works at UCL um, and appears to have just put her doctoral thesis online which makes me think that maybe she's completed it relatively recently so if Ah. that's the case Dr Emily McLeod congratulations For that. She's done a very topical piece of work on uh, teacher recruitment and why people (laughs) do or don't want to be teachers, which is obviously a a question that we're asking ourselves quite a lot at the moment.
1: It is.
0: Yeah, and she's done a great service to the education community. She's making the point that a 100,000 word uh, doctoral thesis is not the most accessible thing. Um, And so she has produced a 13 tweet thread instead which i think is very good i mean i must confess mine was not 100,000 words long but hers obviously was you know considerably more substantial than mine and she's been good enough to boil it down so if you find at ee McLeod, m a c l e, e. o d on twitter you will find her her featured tweet at the top is this one and i'm going to read it out Uh, First of all, she says, my doctoral thesis is now online. You can read it here, and there's a link, so you can go and read the thing. Um, It's actually really long, so here's a summary in case you don't have time to read all 100,000 words. Thanks, Dr. Emily. It's well known that we desperately need more teachers, especially in the sciences. My research is the first study of young people's trajectories towards and away from becoming a teacher. I tracked the teaching trajectories of young people in England who expressed a prior interest in teaching over a period of 11 years. To do this, I used primary data as well as secondary data from the wonderful Aspires Science Project. First, I conducted quantitative analyses of over 60,000 survey responses. I found that many more young people in England at all ages between 10 and 22 are open to teaching than is reflected in teacher recruitment data, around one third of young people at all ages. This finding is promising for increasing teacher recruitment, but my analyses indicate that this openness to teaching is the result of teaching being a common second choice or backup career aspiration, which was especially common amongst science specialists. My analyses also indicate that without targeted efforts to change the current status quo, the teaching workforce in England will continue to remain dominated by those who identify as women and those who identify as white. Through longitudinal qualitative analyses, I found the choice of whether to become a teacher is not a single decision made at one point. It's an ongoing series of negotiations. Participants went back and forth between teaching and other career options, often several times. So why or why not, teaching. My participants were interested in teaching because they perceived it to be a career that is high in status, a profession where people use their gifts to benefit others, and high in safety, a secure and accessible route to a decent lifestyle. This safety is partly why teaching was a common backup career. Some participants thought they could afford not to become a teacher now because the door to teaching would always be open to them. For those who became a teacher by age 21-22, teaching remained high in status and safety. For those who dropped their earlier interest in teaching, the profession was no longer high in status and or high in safety. The status and safety of teaching were therefore relative, transitory and specific to each individual. E.g. teaching is not simply low in status, but for those who feel they have lots of non-teaching options open to them, it might be. Also, those who became teachers implied retrospectively that teaching was their vocation, even if they turned to teaching after first pursuing other careers. What does this messaging mean for those who feel that teaching is not their calling? My recommendations include more targeted long-term careers education about teaching for young people, education which emphasises the skilled and professional nature of initial teacher education. You can learn how to become a teacher through specialised education. You're not born one.
1: Boom. Boom. Very
0: interesting.
1: Very, very interesting. And so, I mean, that is an impressive PhD, isn't it? It's 11 years.
0: I've definitely got PhD status anxiety now.
1: I do too. (laughs) Crikey. I mean, I've got to say that totally resonated with my own path towards teaching it was uh, uh, always that backup it certainly resonated but that's a very good point that if it wasn't you know your calling if you never perceived it to be your calling then what does that mean if you you know if you fancy giving it a go later on in life
0: yeah and i interestingly i was dead set against being a teacher i had views about being a teacher that were extremely negative until I actually tried teaching and found mm. I loved it, and then off I went to become a teacher. But I had decided, for with no reason at all, that teaching was horrible and it wasn't for me. Don't wow. know
1: why. <laughs> wow, wow. I mean, yeah, that's got that. That is really powerful in terms of you know the current situation and what we do next. Those recommendations are really important. Yeah, I don't remember actually in those careers talks and all of that. I can't remember teaching being talked about, Um, I can't remember it being sort of front and centre, it was almost one that, I mean I'm just guessing this now, that wasn't talked about because we saw it every day,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which is not Not. a good introduction
0: (laughs)
2: necessarily. No
0: it's not, and teachers tend to not talk up their jobs often as well quite a lot of them anyway but you're right I mean we always say to this to this to the students don't they all the candidates who try and come on the program that just because you sat on the other side of the room to a teacher doesn't mean you know what teaching is and so yeah I mean actually interestingly her next tweet under her pinned tweet at the moment is a a retweet of somebody else pointing out that over in England where of course they are paying people a lot more money to train than they are over here in Wales they have uh, managed to recruit half their target for secondary ITT as they call it over there so mm-hmm. it's a bit of a scary time really
1: it's a very very scary time um, and I we, we were in a focus group quite recently without going into too much detail about this because we're trying to get to the bottom of this in Wales too um, and it's so complex there is no I mean you know as with all of these sorts of issues there's no one single thing it's a it's a web of things that intersect that make this a very difficult problem to solve.
0: Yeah, particularly when you add in that little little bombshell she dropped in the middle of that thread about she's got kind of data that suggests why there are so many white people teaching mm-hmm. and probably slightly less so in secondary, but certainly in primary, so many female teachers, which mm-hmm. is another kind of whole issue, isn't it really? And yeah, I think what worries me is the question is always what is initial teacher education going to do about it? And as you said, it's a bit of a big thing for us to just fix that by ourselves
1: yeah and 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 as her research sort of proves it starts so much it needs to start so much earlier doesn't it the planting of that seed the sort of i don't know you know if people do sort of flip-flop and you know thinking about it they're coming in and out of it um in a sort of did she call it transitory Mm, way yeah yeah um then you know it needs to Drop into people's consciousness at regular intervals, starting, you know, when they're quite reasonably young, I suppose.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, there we go. I'd quite like to get Emily McLeod, Doctor Emily McLeod, on the podcast, actually. Uh, so I followed her; she has followed me back. This is <laughs> the beginning of getting her on the podcast. So fingers crossed.
1: This is you courting a future it guest. Is. It
0: is shamefully yes. yes, behind the scenes at the podcast.
1: <laughs> okay, brilliant. Okay, well, you started reasonably heavy yeah
0: fairly heavy for me
1: okay okay so i'm going to stick with the benjamin zephaniah theme um because i think he he warrants two um entries and actually i found out um that benjamin zephaniah had sadly died um because i switched on the radio it was radio bbc radio 4 and lem sisay obe um, was talking about him um, because I think they were colleagues, they were friends, they um, worked together, collaborated. Um, in fact, um, Lem Sese adapted one of Benjamin Zephaniah's novels, Refugee Boy, into a play text that I'm going to talk about in a moment. So, Lem Sese, those of you who don't know, is a poet by profession and playwright amongst other things. Um, He also, just anecdotally, and it's worth looking into this, recently adapted Franz Kafka's novella Metamorphosis, which I'm booked to go and see for the stage um, next year. Um, And it's a production by the physical theatre company Frantic Assembly, who I like a lot. So that's worth a watch. However, I'm going to read you a little bit of the introduction that Lem Sisse has written to the play adapt play text adaptation um of benjamin zephaniah's young adult novel um refugee boy and i used the novel because the play adaptation hadn't been published when i was teaching um it was published in 2013 adapted for stage um i had a scheme of work around it and it was really, really powerful, it worked really well because the source material was so good. So um, just briefly, the, the story is one uh, about a boy, Alem Kello, a 14-year-old refugee um, whose parents are from Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, so this is Lem Sesay's introduction. And yet immigration is as natural to us as breathing. The first act of migration is from the womb into open air. The second act of migration is learning to walk, to grow wings and eventually fly the nest. The saying the world is your oyster is a celebration of migration. Ink migrates from pen to paper, words migrate from page to the stage. The English language is full of migrating words that have settled bird-like online paper. The word oyster migrated from 14th century France. Shampoo came from the Hindi language of India. Bungalow came from India too. Shall we detain all words that come from foreign places? If so, I couldn't write to you now, n'est-ce pas? Like the tide, immigration goes both ways across the oceans. The BBC has reported that one in 10 Britons opt to live abroad, a total of 5.5 million. And I checked that stat, um, that it was still accurate. This was written in 2013 and it is. <laughs> um, a total of 5.5 million, a flock. People come in too. In Refugee Boy, we see the story of just one, and through him, we get a bird's eye view of our world. For Alem, trauma is uncomfortably close. The last act of migration in all of us is when breath migrates from the body. From my own childhood, in the Lilliputian villages of Lancashire, migration has played its part. Though immigration refers particularly to a change of country, the town next to my village was not just a different country. It was a different world. I left the villages and migrated to a town, then to a city. If home is where the heart is, then it is wherever you may be. Maybe if we accepted that immigration is natural to humans, which it is after all, there would be more peace in the world. There are more languages than those that use words i can't understand the behavior of more people that speak my language than who don't work that one out written language is only one part of communication which is why a play can bring something altogether different than a novel this play grew from benjamin zephaniah's novel like a seed grows from a tree seeds are blown from trees and take root in other lands Then, in turn, they throw down seeds that take root, and so story continues. We are adapting all the time. The wind swirls around the world, carrying dust from the Sahara and food for migrating birds. The currents of the sea swish between continents and islands, shaping coastlines. Weather patterns have no respect for borders. And I'm going to stop there because he he does go on a little bit more, but I just, it's so poetic um, the way he writes this introduction. And then towards the end of this intro, he sort of, he honours the work of Benjamin Zephaniah um, and talks of him as as one of Britain's most famous living poets. I think he's often referred to um, as the People's Poet Laureate. Um, And I just thought it was a very fitting tribute. Um, If you've not heard of Refugee Boy, you've got two possibilities. You've got the novel, which is a young adult fiction, and you've also got the play adaptation. Um, And I think it's quite, timely to be talking about
0: immigration. I was going to say, uh, you're sticking with the political and going even more topical, (laughs) given we're recording this on the 13th of (laughs) December. All I will say to that, to avoid uh, breaking my usual rule of of no politics, Mm -hmm. um, no political views, is uh, I texted you, you know, we mentioned in a previous episode that I'm a fan of the political cartoon, and I texted you one, didn't I, with a a man was in a shop saying, my wife wants something expensive and impractical for Christmas, do you have a Rwanda policy?
1: <laughs> it was Matt, wasn't it?
0: Matt in the Telegraph, yes. The <laughs> Telegraph of all places.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, so there we are. let to that say. There. Um And that, that concludes my section on Benjamin Zephaniah, um, of whom I, I am a fan.
0: Excellent. I'm going to move on to a book that I'm very, very fond of. Uh, I, it's probably out of print. It always, it's been out of print for absolutely ages, but the internet is a wonderful thing. And when somebody pinched my copy... I went straight onto a well-known internet auction site or somewhere like that and bought another one for about 3 pounds. <laughs> it's uh, Gerald Moore's book The Unashamed Accompanist which was first published in 1943 which is probably why it's uh, it's out of print although it did uh, it did stay in print for quite a long time for those people watching on our snazzy big screen i shall place onto it uh, a nice picture of gerald moore from the book that i have in front of me the unashamed accompanist and just for you emma it's a picture of him working with one great musical hero of yours jacqueline yes. dupre
1: oh wonderful <laughs> the cellist
0: yes wonderful jacqueline dupre now gerald moore was in his day the accompanist of choice to all the stars. Um, he he worked with all of them. I mean, Jacqueline Dupre being just one of an absolutely huge number of massive international star musicians. He was the accompanist of choice. And he wrote this memoir, this sort of memoir slash instruction manual to being an accompanist, I guess you would call it, called The Unashamed Accompanist. And he calls it that because... Obviously, there has been a tendency to slightly look down on the accompanist. I say this as one myself. I I worked and studied as an accompanist for a really long time. And the accompanist is basically the person at the piano who sits behind some massive diva on the stage Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's soaking up all the limelight. So I used to do a lot of accompanying in university. At that time, you couldn't get any credit for being an accompanist. It wasn't a study in the university where I was. So I just did it for the love of it and had to have a different first study. But in this book he's he's making the case that uh, one should not be ashamed to be an accompanist and that it is, you know, a great kind of role to have and it's not the same as being a solo pianist. It's a great book for anybody to read even if they're not a, a pianist or an accompanist. I think there's one chapter that gets a bit technical about piano playing and the rest of it is about how to be the kind of person who makes a good accompanist and he makes the point that it doesn't mean you have to be sort of deferential and a kind of doormat figure carrying the bag full of frocks for the diva but it does mean that you need a sense of partnership you need to be prepared to save the bacon of your soloist occasionally on the stage you need to put them at their ease Uh, you need to provide a, a, a backing a musical sort of backup without being sort of insipid or transparent, and that it takes a certain personality. And, and some of the instructions or some of the advice he gives in the book, I feel, definitely has relevance to those of us that work in education. And I know we've be, we've talked a lot about the nature of being a teacher, haven't we, lately? And, and I think one of the phrases that we often seem to find racing towards our lips when we're talking about it is, it's not about you.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: <laughs> and. It's the same for the accompanist. I mean, actually, accompaniments can be very challenging to play sometimes. More challenging can be the bit where you have to actually stick with the soloist when they go completely rogue on you on the stage. There's a bit of multitasking involved. I feel the personality of an accompanist and the personality of a teacher or or an educator of some kind, there are some definite overlaps. And so I've got two little bits of advice that he gives or bits of information that he gives. The first one, very, very short, comes from the beginning of chapter six, performance. This is the bit where he's talking about where you actually go out on the stage and perform. Um, And it's very, very short, this bit. He says, at the risk of shattering the reader's illusions, I must tear aside the veil of mystery which shrouds the godlike figures of musicians (laughs) and state that when they walk onto the platform, they're often so petrified with nerves that they would give half their fee, or nearly half, to be elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of that thing, isn't it? I mean, I know people do occasionally suggest that you and I are quite confident when we're up doing things. Um, and of course, we've both trained as performers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that is perfectly describes the way i feel still every morning that i walk out in front of my pgc secondary drama student teachers it's that it's extreme nerves but also extreme excitement to work with them i know it sounds really cheesy but um yeah i'm that's that's resonating with me
0: yeah it's uh, I think it's important for everybody to know that everybody who performs is you know is usually in some way keyed up with nerves. Some of us hide it. Some of us have a persona it's the same when you're a teacher. you see these very assured people teaching and you think, gosh you know they, they don't have a shred of nerves about them and I think that's that's a really important one just to put out there from Gerald Moore about musicians, about actors and about teachers as well. And then this other one. He um, talks about, in the previous chapter, the artist's room, what you would probably call the green room, darling, (laughs) (laughs) Um, about what you should be like when you're in in there. And I have certainly, as an accompanist, had many slightly tense situations in, in green rooms with soloists who are, you know, practically hysterical before they go on stage. I mean, again, back to the original point, you know, some of these soloists who are amazing on stage are an absolute mess just before they go on and and can really let it all hang out sometimes. And he says... Fussiness must be avoided. A fussy accompanist will fidget any singer and, possibly ups- and and positively upset the nervous ones. I feel a list of do-nots might be helpful to the young accompanist. It is the product of my own painful experiences. Do not rush into the artist's room and bombard your colleague with questions. For instance, do not say, Will you give me the tempo of this song so I'm quite sure about it? This will tell the singer quite plainly that the accompanist either has the jitters or was sleeping during rehearsals. Again, do not say, Yesterday you felt you had a cold coming on. I'm wondering if you'll be able to take your top notes, mezzo voce, or not. Perhaps I'd better be prepared for you to take them forte. This is a question which the singer cannot answer until he's been on the platform. (laughs) Do not go into the artist's room and say you're tired. If your singer asks you how you are, you must answer fine. You may have shooting pains in the head, have a touch of indigestion, be limping with an ingrowing toenail, but to any questions concerning your well-being, your invariable answer is fine. A friend of mine once talked too much. He was the leader of an orchestra and shared the artist's room with the conductor. For the sake of something better to say, the conductor asked the leader how he was. The leader being the principal first violin in the orchestra, the, the boss of the orchestra. My friend replied, Do you know that after our three hour rehearsal this morning, I went straight home and have been teaching ever since? I'm whacked. He dropped into an armchair. The conductor was furious. He complained to the management and asked what sort of concert would it be when his leader arrived exhausted. Thus we may crawl on all fours in an exhausted condition to a concert, but we must walk into the hall as if we're fresh as paint. Do not at any time relate how wonderfully so-and-so sang these songs when you played for him last year. It will not help your singer. Far from it. He will not love you for it. And finally, as you walk onto the stage, do not step on the soprano's train. <laughs> but actually, I think the most important one out of all of those is if if your singer asks you how you are, you must answer fine. And I think that tells us a little bit, perhaps, about how we need to be with our pupils
1: yeah this is the really tricky thing isn't it if we go back to MacLeod's work from earlier this is what makes it quite challenging you know the profession you can't really spare i'm not i'm not we shouldn't be putting forward the idea that you should be sort of sacrificing yourself you know on the altar of of teaching and learning but i i do agree that there is a sort of game faceness (laughs) about teaching um, and about sort of avoiding all kind of distraction from the matter at hand, which is, you know, making Making things happen for the kids that are in front of you in the classroom.
0: Yeah, it's back to it's not about you. I mean, it's like when I was accompanying, you've got a soloist who's going to have to stand at the front and get looked at, and you're going to be slightly behind them and probably not in quite such a bright light, and people are probably not going to pay much attention to you. The pressure is lower in a way as as the accompanist. Mm. It's not all about you. You have to be able to deal with that. And I think when it comes to teaching it's not always or it's quite rarely all about you and mm. so yeah you don't want to kind of necessarily be burning yourself out or anything like that I mean there was that one a couple of years ago wasn't there where I, I talked about that horrible motivational graphic about people consuming themselves while lighting the way for others it's not that mm. it's about yeah it's not about you
1: yeah yeah oh, it's, it's making me think all sorts of things like they, they're really helpful I think these sort of comparative roles in different professions. It got me reflecting on, you know, when things changed for me in education was when I became a director in a school context. And, you know, having been a performer myself for such a long time, I think it's when I realised that, you know, I'd sort of, I'd scratched that itch. And what I cared most about was making sure that the circumstances were right for those kids to shine, To be thriving on stage, to be enjoying themselves. And, you know, I can liken those green room situations to, you know, sometimes, gosh, you'd be running, you'll know this from school productions, tell me, running around at the last minute, you know, trying to get final things sorted. But you have to convey calmness convey that everything is going to be fine and that everything is in hand um to the pupils so that they can they can do their best
0: yes one to have a little think about there yeah. don't get me wrong but it's not all about you
1: it's not all <laughs> about you <laughs> i tell you what is all about you solitude Ooh. how do you feel about solitude tom love it <laughs> <laughs> And you know that. <laughs> and in what quantity?
0: Oh, loads. Well, not, you know, I, I I do need to be collaborating and, you know, speaking to people. I think the thing you know about me is my, my happy place in terms of kind of group sizes is two or three, including me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, very bad in a big group, uh, either socially or professionally, actually. I tend not to... Participate or, or give very much in in meetings or sessions where there's lots and lots of people. But I tend, I think, to give quite a lot when there's two or three people, and I'm I'm like that socially as well. Um, and I do need a bit of quiet time occasionally, all by myself.
1: <laughs> and and sort of how would you characterise um, the way you sort of go about spending solitude or deciding to have solitude? Because this is important to the findings that I'm going to reveal from my next mm, piece.
0: Okay, I don't think I've really thought about it, to be honest. I don't think I kind of have a quota or anything like that. I don't think I think, right, you know... <laughs> I've had too many people now I must now be alone Mm -hmm. I I will be alone now Mm -hmm. Um, but but I just think when being by myself comes along that's fine I'm Mm -hmm. completely fine with it Um, I like it Um, I I do enjoy it but I'm not kind of militant either way I would say I would say the only thing that really I'm just not at my best in is when the group size gets up above sort of three or four people
1: okay so there was quite a bit of news coverage at the start of december this year around the publication of um, some new research from the university of reading which sheds light on the complex relationship between time spent alone and mental health and i'm reading an article um, published on their website at the university of reading entitled alone but not lonely how solitude boosts well-being So the study um, published uh, on the 5th of December in scientific reports reveals that solitude has both benefits and costs for well-being. Researchers tracked 178 adults aged 35 and older in the UK and the United States for up to 21 days. Using daily diaries, the team recorded time spent alone versus interacting with others. Participants also reported daily measures of stress, life satisfaction, autonomy and The results showed there was no clear optimal balance between solitude and social time. There was no such thing as spending the right number of hours in solitude. Spending more hours alone was linked with increased feelings of reduced stress, suggesting solitude's calming effects. A day with more time in solitude also related to feeling freedom to choose and be oneself. However, greater solitude was not all good. On days with more hours spent alone, people also reported feeling lonely and less satisfied, highlighting potential effects of social isolation. In all, everyday solitude had both beneficial and harmful relationships with well-being. Importantly, the negative impacts were reduced or nullified when solitude was motivated by personal choice rather than enforced by external factors, which is why I was asking you sort of, how you go about deciding. Individuals who spent more time alone overall did not report feeling overly lonely or less satisfied but the benefits remained. People who spent more time alone reported less stress. The authors suggest that with thoughtful use solitude may promote wellness but forced isolation can risk loneliness and dissatisfaction. Choosing solitude and using it intentionally for benefits for its benefits may be key to balancing solitude amid the amid the demands of modern life. They say.
0: Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying that. I think probably the unhappy type of being alone is when you're alone because you've got nothing going on. Mm, (laughs) You've got nothing to do. You know, you're not involved in anything. um, You don't kind of have a point. But if you're alone because you're getting on with something or because you've had a really busy week and now you get a bit of me time that's a very different kind of animal isn't it
1: yeah and of course you know the effects of the pandemic have sort of brought the impact of solitude you know quite sharply into focus you know some people really thriving in lockdowns because they had the time to you know, work on a new hobby, or you know, have time to experience solitude. Um, but for others, you know, it tipped into into loneliness like for those prolonged periods of of enforced solitude. And I just thought it was, you know, something that came out a lot in the media coverage was that, you know, like well-being, there's not this study did not throw up a recipe for well-being via solitude. There was no sort of, as you said, you you don't have a quota for how how much you need but the thing that was sort of quite important that i picked out from this was that it's when you get to choose that i am going to i'm going to have some me time (laughs) now i'm going to have some solitude um seemed to to work well in promoting wellness so if you want to read that full article by uh, Weinstein um, et al Um, it's entitled balance between solitude and socializing everyday solitude time both benefits and harms well-being Um, and as I said earlier on at the start of this it's in scientific reports Um, I don't know if it's open access I'm presuming that it is because it was linked on their website but um, you know hopefully it's not behind an awful paywall
0: there's uh, a link there with silence as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and I nearly, <laughs> I nearly went, to, I nearly went too far, Tom, as I often oh, do. With the, I nearly returned to that lovely book ah, about silence, the Book of Silence yeah. by Sarah Maitland. Yes, I love that book. Um, but I, I, resisted the urge because, as you said at the start, these 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 episodes tend to go on. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think there's there's a sort of slight social stigma thing about solitude, but less than there is, I think, about silence.
1: Yeah, 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 I think you're right. A
0: a weirdo, if you like, silence, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I, it. I like it. <laughs> I like it.
0: Perhaps I'll tack 20 minutes of dead air on the end of this recording, <laughs> my Christmas present to the listeners. D-
1: this will just be repetitive now, but I'm sure that you told me about a famous
0: piece Oh yeah, John Cage, four minutes thirty-three. That's it. Yeah, and the point of that actually is that there isn't silence. No, it's yeah. the
1: yeah, yeah, it's the audience, the noise. You 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 tune in to yeah the sound of the world around yeah. you.
0: Those those kind of weird little things, but yeah, real silence is very hard to come by. Mm. I find very nice. I enjoyed that. I felt I, I felt seen there. That was really nice. Thanks. <laughs> oh, <love. yeah>. uh, <laughs> I was I was wallowing in my truth there. <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> oh, always so awful.
0: I know. Sorry. I shall stop now. And I will now... Right. This one's going to be a challenge for me. I really wanted to talk about this because I think it's very interesting. It's a double challenge in that I couldn't find a really concise summary of this story... Uh, I've ended up with uh, the article from The New Yorker, and we've mentioned articles from The New Yorker before. They're amazing, but they're very, very long. I've printed it out. It's 39 pages long. So I've obviously got some serious pre-seeing to do here. The other reason this is going to be potentially a bit of a rough ride is there is, there is some light maths involved, I'm afraid.
1: Oh, <laughs> OK, Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about Richard now and that episode we had a few years yes. ago where I have to just...
0: Yeah, got to just, you know... Lean into it. Lean into the maths because it's it's only light maths and actually the maths is not the point here particularly. We don't have to really understand the maths to understand what is going on. This is a story I came across um, in first in another podcast. There's a podcast called The Studies Show, which is a kind of a bit of a... Bit of a pun on the studies show that whatever, and they call it the studies show. Uh, it's a bit of a tough listen, actually. I mean, I don't, I don't like to be mean about my fellow podcasters, but but one of them in particular really struggles to get to the end of a sentence <laughs> in one piece, and so it can be it can be quite a frustrating listen. They seriously need some editing uh, on the studies show, but their topics are really interesting, and they lean in some into some quite hardcore sciencey stuff, and it's worth a listen if you can get past certain issues with the delivery, uh, which which definitely needs an edit. It's a story about a blog called Data Collada, which I'm assuming- As in Pina
1: Collada? Yes,
0: I think it's a a pun on that. It's a a blog called Data Collada, and it's a story about academic, well, uh, alleged academic fraud, which I think pretty much people are pretty, you know, it's not very alleged, it's pretty obvious that it happened. And this, this connects with some of the stuff that our good friend, Dr Louise Allen Walker, has talked to us about, which is the quantitative research world. Now we are not very much into the quantitative research world. We tend to work in the qualitative sphere, which means we deal with words, we interview people and we observe things and we, you know, we write notes and that kind of thing. We don't tend to gather numbers that much in our little bit of education. And there's this sort of a weird over-the-fence thing, isn't there, with quant versus qual, where you know, sometimes the quant people will look at the qual people and think, well, that's just, you know, a <laughs> load of made-up stuff. And sometimes there's a bit of a sense that the quant is a, a bit more kind of gold standard because there's numbers in boxes and that kind of thing. Uh, but this is a story which perhaps suggests that things might not be all as they seem in the world of quant. And we know that Louise has talked to us about. Do you remember her talking about the replication crisis, where journals didn't want to print studies that attempted to replicate the results of other studies because they thought it was boring? Mm. And then suddenly, a bunch of people thought, hey, "Let's just let's just have a go at replicating some of these studies." I think they tried to replicate a huge pile of quantitative studies and found that loads of them didn't replicate. Yeah. And now there are whole journals whose whole point is is Publishing replications, and you have to kind of in some journals, you have to say what you're going to do before you do it, and they say they're going to publish whether or not you get a good, you know, neat result. But this is a case where two extremely famous academics have come a little bit unstuck with this, and when I say extremely famous, I mean serious fame. You might have heard about the idea of nudging people to change their behaviour. There was a nudge unit in 10 Downing Street in Blair's time. Obama was very into the idea of nudging. The idea that you just make a little tiny change somewhere and it changes people's behaviour. So the idea that perhaps you'll stick the healthy stuff at the front of the buffet or you'll make organ donations opt out rather than opt in or, you know, that kind of thing. And the idea of behavioural science became extremely fashionable and was very influential on policy, government policy. And two of the most famous data scientists, uh, behavioural scientists, sorry, were were these guys, Dan Ariely and Francesca Gino, whose specialist subject, hilariously, was dishonesty. (laughs) (laughs) And they wrote a number of articles on dishonesty, one of which, which was quite famous in its time, apparently. They produced a study which suggested that if you were working with an insurance company, doing your insurance um, thing for the year, you know, asking for another year of car insurance, and they asked you what your mileage was that you drove because, you know, that has an impact on Mm -hmm. on what your insurance premium is. People are obviously, they have an incentive to under-report their mileage of the year because they're going to get probably a slightly lower insurance premium. They produced a study which purported to say that they had done this this. Test with these kind of mocked up insurance forms. Um, They've done it with an insurance company and they found that if you signed a statement saying that you were going to be honest uh, and that statement came at the top of the form before you actually entered your mileage for the year, people were much, much more honest than if they filled in the form and then had to sign at the end. And this had a really big effect, Uh, you know, that people were starting to change, you know, tax forms, you know, governments were talking about changing tax forms, putting the signatures at the top rather than the bottom, that kind of thing. And then the writers of this blog, Data Collada, got involved. There are three writers. I will find their names uh, in a minute, but I have got 39 pages I'm I'm (laughs) hacking through here with this... uh, with this thing. Data Collada. Uh, here we go. Joe Simmons, Leif Nelson and Yuri Simonson. Uh, they produced this blog and they were approached by a, a graduate I think she was a doctoral student actually who wanted to criticise some of these people's work, these famous sci- uh, data people, behavioural people and got really roasted by her supervisory team who refused to let her do it even though she really, really wanted to because she could see there was dodgy stuff in the data and so they contacted this blog. In a sort of nutshell, they looked at the data set, the quantitative data set which they got hold of, this massive Excel spreadsheet and they found some really, really strange stuff in it. Namely, I mean, one of the most obvious ones was if you... Here's, the, here's where the maths comes in, Emma, right? okay. Imagine you've got loads of drivers, right, and you ask them how many miles they drive in a year, you're going to get a sort of bell curve, Mm -hmm. where there's loads of people driving a medium amount of miles, and a very small number of people driving a small number and a very small number driving doing a large number, you know, you get that curvy shape that we all see on graphs, one of those distributions like a, a curve. When they looked at the spreadsheet, they found, when they plotted it on a graph, they found that In fact, of all the different kind of amounts of miles, you know, 500 to 1,000, 1,001 to 2,000, whatever, exactly the same number of people had driven each category. So instead of a bell curve, you had a massive rectangle on the graph and it cut off at 50,000 miles or around 50,000 miles, which was not the maximum that people could Report. It was just the data suddenly cut off at 50,000 miles. So instead of having a few people at the bottom, a few people at the top and loads in the middle, you had exactly the same number of people all the way along. You had a straight line. They also found that half of the entries in the spreadsheet were in one font and half the entries were in another font. And that each of those entries, you, you could you could find a pair, one in one font, one in the other font, that were basically twin entries. They were very, very close to each other. But they'd obviously used a random number generator. They doubled the amount of data. They'd taken the real data set or the slightly dodgy data set probably. They'd copied it. So you had double the number of entries. And then they just added a small random amount to the second set. So they'd look slightly different, but they could pair them up really, really easily. And final thing, you have to wrap your head round, is the fact that nobody apparently had rounded up or down their mileage, what, there's, there's this brilliant graph where you can see on one data set, there's a vastly bigger number of numbers ending in zero, because people have said, out ah, five hundred yeah, a ah, thousand, you know yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. than there are ending in one two three four five six seven eight or nine. I think there was slightly more ending in five as well, but loads ending in zero because people have been rounding because that's what you do. Yeah, ah, yeah, I
1: would 1, yeah. miles,
0: two thousand whatever. Yeah. But on the other data set that they'd copied. There were no rounded numbers which means basically that they'd taken it they copied it they'd added they'd used a random number generator to add a little bit on to make it look a little bit different but apparently all the people in font number two (laughs) reported their mileage absolutely perfectly down to like the last mile really unlikely yeah really unlikely yeah and so this blog And you can go on the Data Collada blog and you can read these hugely detailed takedowns of this very, very influential article that basically they'd fake their data. Why? is the allegation. Because these two people, well, I mean, why? I don't know why, but I mean, because, in brackets, (laughs) these two academics were earning huge amounts of money as world-famous behavioral scientists. They had the ear of the likes of Obama and Blair. I mean, one of them was earning about a million dollars a year. And they were publishing, I mean, uh, Francesca Gino apparently was publishing 10 Papers to top top ranked journals a year, and there's a quote from a colleague basically saying, "And we know this, don't we? I mean, we don't we don't produce top top ranked papers, but ten of them a year is going some, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and they weren't written by her clearly.
0: Wow, I mean, there there was a lot of weird stuff going on. One of the weird things about her apparently was that although you know, as we know, there's a bit of a pecking order in academia, you know, where you will have these research assistants who do all the kind of Mm -hmm. boring hard stuff with the data. She used to do all the stuff with the data. She used to keep her data close to a chest and and everyone's like why is this top ranking million dollar a year professor doing the number crunching instead of a research assistant. So anyway, data collada took down this article in in massively impressive terms over about four blog posts. It ended up getting retracted. Francesca Gino, um, I mean, they, they were both also, they were both subject to a, some significant amounts of disciplinary action by their institutions. Francesca Gino was was sort of put on administrative unpaid leave and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, suspended basically by Harvard, and then sued Harvard and the blog for $25 million, which then caused a bit of a backlash in the academic community because, you know, the, these guys were, were pointing out pretty obvious flaws in the data which they they make available for download so you can see it yourself and so then they they ended up getting donated some massive six figure sum to help with their legal fees and as they say the case is ongoing
1: wow so the the legal case that she mounted against was it was that libel or something like that
0: yeah yeah.
1: Wow. Done
0: them for defamation and, and, you know, for Harvard for, you know, unfair. Well, no, she hasn't quite been dismissed, but she's been, you know, suspended and all of that kind of thing. But it just kind of goes to show that this sense that the quantitative world is sort of a bit holier than now because it's numbers in boxes. Actually, nobody was looking at these data sets. Everybody was looking at these ridiculous kind of things that people were saying and none of this stuff was replicating. In fact these these three blog writers apparently published a parody article called False Positive Psychology in which they proved in inverted commas that listening to the Beatles song and you've got your Beatles jumper on today this is good listening to the Beatles song When I'm 64 rendered studies, study participants literally a year and a half younger <laughs> because they just as they say you know data will tell you anything if you torture it hard enough.
1: Yeah and it's interesting that the thing that really sort of made the matter or make sense to me was the human element yeah. which is that you're more likely to round it up yeah you know so like the qual, like knowing like true b- human behavior and the qualitative sort of side of that. i know I'm I'm, I'm I'm what i'm really saying is that a human you if you look at the, if you look at the data Knowing that yeah. that was gathered from humans.
0: Yes, and exactly. And also knowing that you you would get a bell curve if you yeah. plotted the mileage of thousands of people, you know, it's it's and to get a rectangle. But nobody's checking this stuff or nobody no. was checking this stuff. And the job that these people have done on the Data Collada blog is super impressive, I have to say. They, they go into the sort of history in these spreadsheets and see that people have been moving things around in there to make make the numbers sort of add up to the thing that they want to prove.
1: Wow, and yeah, something I notice about journal articles is that, you know, for obvious reasons that you don't have to include all of your appendices, including all of your raw data. Some do, mm. um, but, you know, even, you know, qualitative studies, they don't include all of that raw data, they they couldn't with qualitative. So, yeah, you, you can't even check, can you? If you're the reader, you just sort of, you know, take, take what they're saying as as true
0: yeah you do and i mean i think in some of these cases they do provide the data sets and nobody was checking
1: them wow
0: which is quite amazing yeah i mean
1: fair play to that doctoral student
0: yeah yeah if you read the new yorker article which is entitled they studied dishonesty was their work a lie um somewhere (laughs) towards the middle of it they talk about this doctoral student who who wanted I'm, I'm trying to find it now in the thirty nine pages. Um, but I can't. Um. I mean the
1: question is whilst you're looking for that, yeah you know, why did her supervisory team? I mean, this is the concern, isn't it, about celebrity in any kind of work uh, sphere? as soon as somebody becomes untouchable, you know it sort of senses it's it's kind of, censoring takes place which is essentially what happened with those her supervisors sort of warning her off questioning someone with that much status and and you know educational prowess
0: that's it zoe ziani her name is she she was reading an article i mean i i I won't go into the fine detail of the article because we'll be here all day but it was basically that to give you an idea of how ridiculous a lot of these claims were that everybody was just swallowing (laughs) the the article that they read that she read was suggesting that networking you know like going around and networking literally made people feel unclean (laughs) which is bizarre i mean you you can read the article to see how they came to that and she looked at the results assumed that they'd been fiddling the figures um expressed her doubts the advisor said don't ever say that the members of the dissertation committee couldn't understand why this nobody of a student was being so truculent. In the end, two of them refused to sign off on her degree if she did not remove criticisms of Gino's paper from her dissertation. One warns Ziani not to second-guess a professor of Gino's stature in this way. In an email, the advisor wrote, academic research is like a conversation at a cocktail party. You are storming in shouting, you suck.
1: <laughs> <gasps> that... That worries me in some ways more than anything else. Like, if a doctoral student cannot, it's it, 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 like in any, you know, if, if, if a student teacher can't come into a school and sort of respectfully call out something that isn't working or make a suggestion, like that is just a real concern to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. It says she complied, but her professional relationships had deteriorated and she soon left the cocktail party for good.
1: I wonder what Ziani's doing now.
0: Uh, it probably says in the article, but we wow. <laughs> probably had too long on Data Collada now. But it, it's fascinating if you yeah. dig into it. And, you know, don't be afraid to dig into it if you're a bit frightened of the maths, because it's it's like you said, it's clear and it's, it's about human stuff. And it's so interesting.
1: Yeah. You explained that really well by the way. Thank you. Should, you. I uh, think consider, I took a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I no, I don't like the idea of teaching. But <laughs> 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 Yeah, I think I, I may have taken a little long out of our running time there, but I thought it was worth it because I've been following this story for a good few months now and it's just fascinating.
1: Totally worth it. Um okay. Well I'm not gonna feel guilty about following it up with a little bit of a meaty one myself it. it's, it's not meaty actually it's just lengthy um, the clip is lengthy but it's totally Ooh, yeah, worth clip. it I
0: shall fade you up then okay there we so are. you are faded
1: Are you familiar with letters live
0: Oh. Is, yes, I was reading about this the other day, and nearly brought it to the
1: oh my god <laughs> to <the> show. Yes. <laughs> here we go. So, for those of you unfamiliar with Letters Live, um, it's it's uh, it's its tenth birthday this year. Um, it started out; the first one took place in December two thousand and thirteen at the Tabernacle in London, and quickly established it's, established itself as a very powerful and dynamic event format that attracted outstanding talents to performing. R- to t- uh, start that again. That <laughs> and again <laughs> as a very powerful and dynamic event format that attracted outstanding talents to performing remarkable letters in front of a live audience and that is what it is, it is performers performing um, letters that have been written across you know hundreds of, centuries actually some of these are centuries old and um, to a live audience and it's a it's a celebration as they say on their website of the enduring power of literary correspondence it's incredibly funny sometimes very moving um each show always features a completely different array of great performers and i think um the the thing uh is that there's this sort of mystery around who is going to turn up um i think there are some uh, performers that uh regularly make an appearance i believe benedict cumberbatch uh um, Um, was one of the sort of founding members um, of Letters Live and it's charitable Um, so I think from the outset they've been committed to promoting literacy and fundraising for literacy charities Um, so it's an important part of, of that work. So obviously I needed to play you one of these Letters Live performances before I do, I need to just express my love. I'm a total fangirl of Olivia Colman, CBE, um, who, if you don't know, was an Oscar-winning actress. Um, She won the Oscar for her role in The Favourite. Uh, She's a British actress, incredibly funny, warm, down to earth. She's just incredible. I urge you to um, watch her performance of this, which is freely available on the Letters Live YouTube channel. Um, but she's about, you're about to hear her reading a 17th century letter from a wife to her husband. Um, watch it because the subtlety of what she does physically is just genius. Here goes.
2: My sweet life. Now I have declared to you my mind for the settling of your state, I suppose that it were best for me to bethink or consider with myself what allowance were meetest for me. Uh, for considering what care I have had of your estate, and how respectfully I dealt with those which, both by the laws of God and nature and of civil polity, wit, religion, government, you, my dear, are bound to, I pray and beseech you grant me or most kind and loving wife, the sum of £26,000 per annum, (laughs) quarterly to be paid. Also, I would have £600 added yearly for the performance of charitable works, and those things I would not, neither will be accountable for. Also, I will have three horses for my own saddle that none shall dare to lend or borrow, none lend but I. None Borrow but you. (laughs) Also, I would have two gentlewomen, lest one should be sick or have some other let. Also, believe that it is an indecent thing for a gentlewoman to stand mumping alone when God hath blessed their lord and lady with a good estate. Also, when I ride a-hunting, Hawking or travel from one house to another, I will have them attending me. So for either of these said women, I must and will have for either of them a horse. Also, (laughs) it's quite long, this letter. (laughs) Also, I will have six or eight gentlemen. And I will have my two coaches one lined with velvet to myself, with four very fair horses, and a coach for my women, lined with sweet cloth and laced with gold, Um, (laughs) the other with scarlet and laced with silver, with four good horses. Also, I will have two coachmen, one for my own coach and the other for my women. Um, Also, at any time when I travel, I will be allowed not only carriages and spare horses for me and my women, but I will also have such carriages as shall be fitting for all, orderly, not pestering my things with my women's, nor theirs with chambermaids, nor theirs with washmaids. (laughs) Also, (laughs) for laundresses when I travel, I will have them sent away before with the carriages to see all safe, and the chambermaids I will have go before, that the chambers may be ready, sweet and clean. Also, (laughs) that it is indecent to crowd up myself with my gentleman Usher in my coach. (laughs) I will have him to have a convenient horse to attend me, either in town or country. And I must have two footmen, um, and my desire is that you defray all the charges for me. Obviously. (laughs) It goes on. Also... For myself, besides my yearly allowance, I would have 20 gowns of apparel, six of them excellent good ones, eight of them for the country, and six other of them very excellent good ones. (laughs) Also, I would have you put in my purse £2,000, and so for you to pay my debts. Also. I would have £6,000 to buy me jewels, and £4,000 to buy me a pearl chain. Also, seeing as I have been and am so reasonable unto you, I pray you do find my children apparel, and their schooling, and also my servants, men and women, their wages. Also, I will have all my houses furnished, and my lodging chambers to be suited with all such furniture as shall be fit as beds, stools, chairs, suitable cushions, carpets, silver, warming pans, cupboards of plate, fair hangings and such like. So for my drawing chambers in all houses, I will have them delicately furnished, both with hangings, couch, canopy, glass, carpets, chairs, cushions and all things there and onto belonging. (sighs) nearly there. Also, (laughs) my desire is that you would pay all my debts (laughs) build up Ashby House and purchase
0: lands
2: (laughs) and lend no money to the Lord Chamberlain who would have perhaps your life from you remember his son, my Lord Walden what entertainment he gave me when you were at jousting If you were dead, he said, he would be a husband, a father, a brother, and he said he would marry me. I protest I grieve to see the poor man have so little wit and honesty to use his friend so vilely. So, now that I have declared to you what I would have, and what it is I would not have, I pray that when you be an earl, to allow me £2,000 more than I now deserve. (laughs) And double attendance your loving
0: wife Eliza Compton single-handedly keeping the horse industry alive there
1: (laughs) all of those horses (laughs) uh, six minutes long but that is the beauty of it 17th century women who says they didn't have power
0: (laughs) well indeed I've been meaning to do something about letters not letters live I only read about that the other day but letters in general because I was thinking gosh you know our younger listeners used to go out, I don't know about you, used to go out on national youth things and you'd, you'd go with a notebook and you'd get everybody's address and then you'd write them letters yeah. in the year between courses and then you'd get letters back. Crazy, hey? Yeah. Eh?
1: yeah, pen friends. That was a thing. Yeah. Was that a thing when you were well, in school? Well,
0: it was. I had a German pen friend from, from the former East Germany who had blue hair and a parrot. <laughs>
2: Yes. Great.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is it's it's potentially a dying thing Sin, really. Yes. It's um but I I just love it. Go I mean, if you if you just found out about it now by listening to this, I'm so happy for you because there are some excellent videos um of these performances all accessible um on the Letters Live YouTube channel. Enjoy.
0: Somewhere I have a box of letters from my friends from National Youth Choir and National Youth Orchestra of Wales. I have occasionally thought about finding any interesting ones and bringing one in, but we'll see.
1: They're like historical artefacts now, aren't they? they If you go up in your attic and you find one, it's like, oh gosh, this is uh, something from the past, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Lovely stuff. Right, I'm going to accelerate slightly uh, because we're running along, as usual. Very quick one, very quick tweet for us from... Uh, Susie Dent of uh, Countdown mm-hmm, Dictionary Corner fame. She appears. I only spotted this tweet. Appears at some point. She asked, "What were the phrases you'd like to ban?" Uh, and in reverse order, number ten, "My bad." Number nine, "The optics of something." Number eight, "So" at the start of a sentence. Number seven, "Let's go offline." Number six, basically. Number five, I'm not going to lie. At four, I wanted to reach out. At three, like as a filler. At two, no disrespect but. And at one, going forward.
1: <laughs> I think number five, Ruth Jones has got something to do with. And ah, yes. particularly Cardiffians. I'm not going to lie. I'm
0: not going to lie. No disrespect. Yeah. I, I think actually the biggest surprise for me in that list was the most Keenest crime of all is nowhere to be seen which is that coffee shop crime can i get oh can i get when asked to a person i mean if i ever decide i want a career change and go and work in a coffee shop the answer will be no the idea is i get it stay on that side of the counter (laughs) can i get
1: why is literally not on there? I don't know. I think I'm guilty of this one myself, uh, but that is annoying as well. That yeah. it literally, literally
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I die a little inside every time someone asks the coffee shop people, um, can I get a? I think I don't even know why. I think maybe does it minimise the sort of existence of the person behind the counter? <laughs> You know you're not going to get it this person is going to make it for you
1: yeah that's a very yeah. good point Can okay. i just pop across the counter yeah the optics are bad I, that that they say that a lot in um succession yeah. which i'm a, a big fan of i think going forward is probably said a lot in meetings oh, yes. yeah yes, that's yes, definitely yes. said a lot there's a few on there that actually are probably said a lot in meetings where's touch
0: base when you need it yeah it's a dreadful abomination
1: We should play bingo with these, shouldn't we?
0: We should, we should. Meeting bingo. Anyway, that's a quick one from me. Uh, And anyone uh, I find in the coffee shop asking, can I get, will get a swift slap.
1: (laughs) I'm going to do it next time I go to the coffee shop. Okay, so (laughs) I've got uh, two quick ones to end with. I'm going to try and make them quick, actually. And they're a bit more soporific. So if you're, um, you know, delving into your Christmas chocolate and starting to feel a tad sleepy, this will send you off. So the lost spells is um, kind of like the sister of or the little sister of The Lost Words. The Lost Words, the first collaboration by Robert Macfarlane and Jackie Morris, who is the illustrator. Robert Robert Macfarlane is the writer, the poet. um, Was a dazzling, original, dazzlingly, dazzlingly original celebration of language and nature. It became a cultural phenomenon, winning many prizes, including the Kate Greenway Medal, and being adapted for folk, for folk song, for classical music, rap, film, drama, dance, radio, card game games, and jigsaws, as well as murals for hospital walls. I feel a bit like Mm. (laughs) Olivia Colman now. Also, also, community (laughs) campaigns have now donated copies of The Lost Words to more than two-thirds of primary schools in Britain, as well as to every hospice in the country. So they are basically poems about nature um, and language. And I've probably said on this podcast in the past that Robert McFarlane talks about the loss of words um, from uh, children's dictionaries, um, particularly linked to nature. And he sort of profoundly says that if we don't know the words for things in nature, we don't see them, they're not visible to us. And so that's sort of the philosophy that sits behind these books. So The Lost Spells, which I have in my hand, is its little sister. And I'm just going to read you um, the last of the spells entitled Silver Birch, a Lullaby. Now, I must mention before I start that the poem refers to um, uh, my silver seeker um, and it's referring to a beautiful red fox who features in the illustrations um, uh, going along with this poem so here goes silver birch a lullaby snow is falling my silver seeker soon the path will be lost to sight soon the day the day will give way to night Ice is forming, my silver seeker, soon the streams will be fastened tight, soon the shadows will claim the night. Look over your shoulder at where you have been, the edge of the wood can no longer be seen. Vast is the forest and slender your track, harder it grows to find your way back. Even as the dusk gets dimmer, still the birch trunks glow like torches, still the birch bark holds its glimmer. Rest your head now, silver seeker, close your eyes and cease your searches where the blackbird brightly perches, where the catkin softly brushes, here among the gleaming birches. Break of dawn is far away, but you are safe, my silver sleeper, safe to sink down deep and deeper. In the night the birches watch you with their black, unblinking eyes, standing guard and keeping vigil while you make your dreaming journeys. Round and round the dangers prowl, wolves and monsters, worries, witches, but the birches stand like churches as the dark around them surges, circles, crouches, clutches, lunges, but breaks its power on birches branches. Held at bay until at last the sun emerges, warms the pines, the larches, lights your yawns, your stretches, there among the silver birches.
0: Nicely read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was channelling my inner... Olivia Coleman.
0: Yeah, very good.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I thought it was—it's quite beautiful. It's a, it, the illustrations are exquisite. Lovely book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Which I'm, as I've said on this podcast before, I'm a sucker for a really beautiful book.
0: You are. I was reading somewhere that they found the golden mole.
1: They found the golden mole. They found it. Do you oh, the golden mole. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's advent calendar entry. I think that's today's. Oh, actually. is it today's? Yeah, the thirteenth.
0: Thirteenth yeah. of December. Yeah, they found a golden mole it's not wow. extinct I thought it was it's my Christmas present to you that bit of news
1: oh send me that link that is that is wonderful that's Catherine Rundell's book by the way um, go, and, go and have a read it's a yes. really great book that you gifted to me I, I think for my birthday last year Oh, uh, was it last year well,
0: yeah, I can't remember now but yes lovely oh well that is a lovely bit of poetry I'm going to I'm going to bring things down a little bit now it was a bit, of a bit of a kind of atmospheric feel to that um, poem. I have got a story. Uh, this is to do with sound. We know I like a bit to do with sound. It's mm-hmm. got a little bit of a connection with the, the stuff you were talking about earlier, about solitude and silence and all of that. It's from The Telegraph, and it's by Tom Nicholson. And I, I was most surprised to find this article in The Telegraph, being as it's not about immigration, wokeness, or the royal family. I'm assuming Tom Nicholson has been given his P45. But- <laughs> Writing an article not about those three things. But here we go. The mystery of the ghost frequency, the most terrifying sound known to man.
1: Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Okay.
0: Strap in. Oh, right. Wow. Um, a Long article, so I'll only read the start of it. In the early 1980s, Vic Tandy was one of a team designing medical equipment in a laboratory at Coventry University. Everybody said that the lab was haunted. It just felt weird in there. That evening was when Tandy was on his own, he felt something very strange. I was sweating but cold, and the feeling of depression was noticeable. But there was also something else, he told the Birmingham Post at the time. Suddenly he felt like he was being watched. It was as though something was in the room with me. A greyish shape appeared on the edge of his vision. The temperature dropped. As he turned to look at the shape, it disappeared. There was absolutely no evidence to support what he'd seen, so he decided he must be cracking up and went home. Tandy and his colleague Tony Lawrence wrote in a 1998 paper, on the incident. Tandy was a man with many interests. He became a lecturer in information technology at Coventry University and was an engineer, but was also a keen magician and member of the Leamington and Warwick Magic Society. <laughs> in his spare time, he had time to go fencing too. On another evening in the same laboratory, another odd thing happened. His fencing foil was clamped in a vice on a table in the middle of the room. Nothing else was touching it, but slowly at first, then faster and faster the blade started to vibrate up and down intrigued tandy started to investigate and discovered a new extractor fan near the laboratory it was sending rumbling low frequency sound waves of waves of 18.9 hertz into the laboratory which were bouncing around and focusing where his foil was clamped these frequencies were below the range that the human ear can hear but tandy surmised that these low frequency sounds known as infrasound the polar opposite to high-frequency, high-pitched ultrasound, were what what had caused his experiences. In another investigation a few years later, Tandy found that an apparently haunted 14th-century cellar underneath Coventry's tourist information centre was focusing infrasound at 19 hertz from the pump of a nearby fountain. So they go on to talk about these frequencies, invisible inaudible waves which seep through buildings in the ground and into our bodies might have caused those exposed to experience what they perceived as being haunted. Um, the so-called ghost frequency has built up quite a myth. Some say it can make you be sick, send you running from a room, or induce shivers and sweat. They even suggested it could make you see ghosts, citing a NASA report that put the resonant frequency of the human eyeball at 18 hertz. If this was the case, then the eyeball eyeball would be vibrating, which would cause a serious smearing of vision. It would not be unreasonable to see dark, shadowy forms. Um, And then they talk about there are some film directors that put it in films, even though you can't hear it, in order to unsettle the audience. They talk about the fact that very, very big organ pipes actually produce some um, fundamental frequencies you can't really hear. And why were they doing that? Maybe they were... You know the early version of doing that you know giving everybody a really profound experience in church with these these very very low frequency sounds uh, they talk about an experiment that they did with a kind of infrasonic cannon that they built out of a drain pipe and you know did two concerts one with and one without and got the, the participants the audience members to rate how emotional they found the concert and found the ones who were exposed to the low frequency inaudible sounds, sounds they, they had more of an emotional experience so it could be that if you are in a place and you're feeling a little bit odd it could be that you are experiencing inaudible infrasound at 19 hertz. <gasps> the
1: ghost frequency. The
0: ghost frequency. And so, of course, I sat down with my sound editor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, are you going to play it to me now?
0: And I thought, well, let's have oh my a god, listen, let's... shall we? <laughs> oh
1: my god! I did not sign ethics form. No,
0: you didn't. Don't worry. Quite apart from anything else, um, you would need an enormous speaker. Um, these headphones are not going to cut it. Listeners, don't panic. You're probably listening through AirPods or something similar. It's not going to do anything. Um, also, probably when I make this into an MP3, it will probably strip it out anyway. But I am going to play some nice uh, some nice low-frequency sounds. First. Let's start at 100 hertz. 100 hertz is like mains electricity hum, you know, when you hear something humming. That sound I'm always having to cut out of the podcast when I forget to switch the extractor fan. Opposite. We'll start at a hundred. There we go. We'll go down to fifty. <laughs> we'll halve it again. We'll go down to twenty. How's that for you?
1: <laughs> I can't hear it. No, I did say. Yeah, but my eyeballs—how are aren't your eyeballs? Sh- not shaking.
0: How's your various bodily functions? <gasps> Who is that in the corner of the room? <laughs> We're about to have an incident. <laughs> I have to say, I think I can hear. It.
1: I, well, you, I, right you do there. astonish me. Sometimes I thought I heard it right at the end there, but I don't know. Whether it's my brain. It might be psychological. Matrix. Yeah. Have you
0: seen any ghosts?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> but that is fascinating. It's
0: interesting, isn't it? I mean, you would need a, a very big speaker to really do that properly. Mm. Um, I mean, we're going to get complaints if I'm wrong, but uh, if there's people out there all screaming, listening to this now, yeah, infrasonics.
1: It, it's amazing how. You need to know, listener, that we do not confer at all um <laughs> we don't. over these offerings. <laughs> we so we'll about we, our homework. We're hearing these for the first time. And my final offering is an organist. Oh,
0: there we are.
1: <laughs> and I wonder I just everything you said there about, you know, potentially an organ makes Yeah, some, they do. Okay.
0: Very low frequency. I mean, actually, just just very, very quickly on this, there's been all those news stories about um, American diplomats in, was it Cuba, reporting strange health conditions, which they thought might have been some sort of audio-based attack. Oh, yeah. And they never quite got to the bottom of that. I mean, the amount of energy in those low-frequency sounds. When I, I got on the editor yesterday and generated these low frequencies, I could hear almost nothing through my headphones, but the meters were right up in the red.
1: That is scary. So there's a lot of
0: energy there you you can't hear it. it. It would move a lot of air if you had a sufficiently large speaker
1: to So do it. what would generate it then? So like an extractor fan was doing it in the case of...
0: Yeah, extractor fans, I mean obviously organ pipes are, you know, if you've got one that's sort of 64 feet long and you've got air blowing down a, a pipe of that length, you'll get that kind of frequency like you know enormous recorder or, or an enormous flute or something like that um you know pumps there are all sorts of news stories aren't there about mysterious sounds bothering communities wow this goes back to my point it's very hard to find genuine silence yeah even if you can't hear it A
1: ghost <laughs> frequency the
0: ghost okay see right on to the organist onto the organist to which is you kind
1: you of yeah you do right, it's kind go. of got a spooky feel to it as well oh, um Anna Lapwood.
0: Ah, Anna Lapwood.
1: She's an organist. She is. She's a conductor. She's a broadcaster.
0: She's a social media star.
1: <laughs> she is. Also, she holds the position of Director of Music at Pembroke College, Cambridge. Um, She's associate artist of the Royal Albert Hall in London and artist in association with the BBC Singers. And in 2000, in this year, sorry, in 2023, she was awarded the prestigious Game Changer Award from the Royal Philharmonic Society. And she's also got a record deal with Sony Classical as an exclusive recording artist. And also, she says at the end of her... (laughs) I can't help it now. She says at the end of her own sort of... um, Profile on her website, having spent some years being encouraged to play like a man, Anna is proud and humble to see so many adopt her hashtag play like a girl.
0: We should say the organ world is extremely male do- dominated. Okay. certainly has been historically.
1: So it's it's really interesting just watching her play because she is quite a, I don't know what her height is, but she's quite a small person. Um, it, it just a physical feat watching her play the organ. Um, She... Uh, you're about to hear a piece that's got another story to it that I'll make very brief. If you listen to our Half Terms special, um, I think it was in that episode, I was talking about Christopher Nolan. Oh yes. Um, who I admire a lot. And one of my favourite Christopher Nolan films, it's Interstellar. Originally, um, uh, the film score was originally composed by German um, film score composer Hans Zimmer. Um, and you're about to hear... Anna Lapwood um, playing live um, on the organ in the Royal Albert Hall. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning as well that she has very happy memories of playing in the middle of the night. So she'd rehearse in the Royal Albert Hall in the middle of the night, and the crew and cleaners would often sort of whistle away. But she'd be on her own in this vast auditorium, you know, just playing the organ, which is quite spooky, I think. Um, so we're Been gonna there. <laughs> <laughs> I changed
0: as an organist very much been there. Yeah, we,
1: you've yeah. told me a few a yeah. few sort of ghost stories of... Uh, of, of yeah. Bring um, your own
0: ghost frequency, you know, Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I just wanted to sort of share with you, before we play this, this very short um, piece of music of her playing Cornfield Chase um, from the Interstellar film soundtrack, she says of it, it's a special one because it was one of the first film music pieces that I transcribed for the organ and it started me off on this huge journey of exploration and discovery. I was performing a concert at Temple Church in London, where the Interstellar soundtrack was originally recorded, and couldn't resist trying a little bit out. I posted a short clip on TikTok, and it blew up straight away. I didn't really look back after that, so this sort of really launched her as this, um, uh, yeah, as you said, social media um, personality um and she says this piece is also a favorite for me because we hear a softer side of the organ with a very gent with very gentle strings in the left hand and flutes on the right hand i love to show people the contrast and colors of the organ so it's nice to demonstrate how the soft colors can carry just as much emotional weight as the earth shattering material um, and i think when this was performed to an audience there is no audience in this clip that i'm about to play um it it was accompanied by a beautiful, exquisite sort of light show. Um, So really ambient, really amazing. So I should probably shut up now and just let you listen to it. Here goes.
0: acoustic in there
1: <laughs> I mean like you talked earlier on about emotions if I, if I ever get to sit in that auditorium and hear something like that I think I would most definitely be reduced to tears <laughs> I just find that whoa, it's just phenomenal the way it builds this sort of like I don't know much about music Tom sorry but those bass is it chords like mm-hmm. the, the, oh god the atmosphere that that creates the way it sort of Builds. And it's really indicative of Hans Zimmer's composition as well and what he does when he works with Christopher Nolan because there's often a lot of sort of suspense being built and tension building over a long period of time through the music. Dunkirk is another example of a movie that does that. Recently Oppenheimer did the same thing. It's it, I love Hans Zimmer's composition, but then hearing it being played by Anna Lapwood on that just incredible instrument is just... Whoa, it's yeah. another level, I think.
0: Yeah, and if you if you go in person, you will feel the building move when Whoa. that's going on. It's quite amazing.
1: Uh, that's a bucket list thing for me
0: all right we'll we'll meet up somewhere where i've got permission to play and i'll
1: uh,
0: (sighs) hit you with some ghost frequencies how's that for a christmas present (laughs) yeah
1: for sure (laughs) sign me up
0: (laughs) yeah it's good to see um some female organists actually because like i said it is such a male dominated world and it is it's another very solitary world you know because you you only get one organist at a time Mm -hmm. and they're a bit like spiders or cats in that respect they kill each other if they get put in a room together
1: (laughs) uh well i'm support i'm sure there's much more to it than this but is it because I mean, it looks highly physically demanding
0: it can be some of them i mean i don't want to go down a geek rabbit hole here but for some of them the action the way that the keys connect to the pipes is done with pneumatics or electrics and stuff like that on the original ones it was like a big mechanical kind of heath robinson-esque thing inside and i've certainly given recitals back in the day on historic instruments where i had to program the order of the pieces very carefully so if there's something that had an awful lot of notes in it i'd have something a bit gentle afterwards and i'd also make sure i give a nice long introduction you know explanation of the next piece while my hands (laughs) unclenched yeah it can get it can be pretty pretty hard going sometimes a bit of a workout and
1: that's why i urge you to watch anna lapwood playing it actually and not just anna lapwood but any other organist that you fancy having to listen to but um she's got a youtube channel entitled Anna Lapwood and it's the midnight sessions that uh, that particular piece came from so there yes. we are very musical this very uh, and my
0: next one is too oh there we go <laughs> <clears throat> yeah right we're ending with because this is the last one now isn't it, it? Is, yes it is. well this is where I shamelessly try to try to re- replicate my success from last year where we had unsung heroes of music mm-hmm. which you really seems to quite enjoy mm-hmm. down the line in your your covidy state uh, last year, it, it, he's not quite such an unsung hero, but he's possibly not not as sung as he, as sung as he should be. um I'm going to detonate a bit of a nostalgia bomb on you here. I'm going to try and take you back to your younger days, coming home from school, putting on children's telly, and in my, I, I am a little bit older than you, and and. These words sound a lot more troubling in 2023 than they might have done in the late 80s. We would come home from school and we would join Philip Schofield in the broom cupboard. Oh dear. I know that didn't age well, did it? But back in the late 80s. (laughs) He was a very wholesome, very smiley uh, TV presenter. I was—I was thinking about this this morning before we came in, and I was thinking, mm, "You're a little bit younger than me." Was it Phillips Schofield? Yeah, it was. And,
1: was, was G- it? and
0: Gordon the Gopher? Gordon the Gopher. Yeah. Okay. So we would go and we, we would we would watch the telly, wouldn't we, in the afternoons after yeah. school, or perhaps in the Christmas holidays, or. Saturday mornings and Philip Schofield would sit in the broom cupboard which for younger viewers was literally I think the BBC One continuity studio with some drawings up on the wall where he would self-operate all the afternoons telly I know he was actually he did a very good job of it and we would watch a variety of cartoons probably. Um, and we might be sitting. Now, I have got a number of buttons here on my device because, as I said, I, I've got to try and do a, do a carefully focused nostalgia bomb on you here. And as you're slightly younger than me, it's, it, it might it might miss its target. But you might hear something like
1: this. Yeah. Yeah, you're safe.
0: <laughs> I'm safe. Yeah. Oh! I've even got him on the big screen for you. Coming up.
1: Oh, amazing!
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd enjoy this. I should also say at this point that uh, the Inspector Gadget theme tune, uh, which we are listening to now for anyone who doesn't know it, has absolutely no business having a middle eight this good. So probably yes, mummy yeah. the wrong instrument You're, there. Well, you know, you <laughs> mine whatever you like. We're, it's not like we're surrounded by cameras or anything. So there we go there <laughs> There we go, the inspector gadget theme. We might be uh, listening to that. Or I don't know, this one this one might land a little bit early for you, but we'll give it a try. Chosen well, wow, I?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Another excellent little eight. Come in here. <laughs> And can we believe that in the 1980s, um, the theme songs for kids' programmes were so long they even had time for a cheesy key change?
1: Yeah. The animation is incredible as well. There it is. (laughs) Oh, yes! (laughs) There it
0: is! There we go. Just gave you a little bit of nostalgia there. My unsung hero of music this year is a man called Shuki Levy. Have you heard of Shuki Levy? Sorry. No. Well, nor had I. Nor had I. But Shuki Levy was responsible for a truly ridiculous number of theme tunes, of the things that the likes of you and I used to watch in our youth. Everything from the ones we've listened to and um, oh, the get along gang, I vaguely remember yeah, that one.
1: he Man
0: and gang. the Masters of the Universe.
1: Wow.
0: Um The Mysterious Cities of Gold. I don't know if that one was a bit early for you. That was a that was a truly barking mad 39 episode epic adventure story set in 16th century South America, would you believe? Wow. So. Um, which actually had a absolutely epic music score attached to it as well. I mean, it was a barking mad story, but the music score was absolutely amazing. Wow. Shuki Levy was born in 1947 and had a brief career as a performer. He then, I believe, he's Israeli-American. He he wrote the uh, Israeli entry for Eurovision in 1981 and then went on to write I mean, he's got how many has he got? Uh, it, it's thousands. He's got thousands and thousands of these theme songs to his name. If you check out his either his website or his Wikipedia entry, you will find uh, a dodgy cartoon from your youth that he has written <laughs> the music score for. Did
1: he do Trapdoor?
0: <laughs> no, he oh. did not do that. Um, but he, it was mostly the sort of American imported ones where, and and in the case of the Mysterious Cities of Gold, I think it was originally Japanese, and then it was dubbed into French and then dubbed into English. Uh, he did the music for that. So any of those sort of imported things that we would have listened to in our misspent, or watched in our misspent youth on a Saturday morning or Christmas holidays, he has done the theme for it. He is basically the soundtrack of the youth of anybody who was growing up in the 80s or 90s.
1: Wow. I'm looking down the list now as we speak and... Ah, this is amazing. Turtles?
0: Oh, yes, yes.
1: I was wondering if he did the raccoons. That was a, that was a favourite of mine. I think
0: so, but no. he did an awful lot. I mean, there was some sort of story, some sort of investigation by um, one of the Hollywood um, magazines that he sort of had a kind of studio type set up going. It was him and a guy called Haim Saban who who was kind of like the business side of it and they had a lot of freelance composers producing a lot of stuff which they would then put their names on and therefore get the royalties for. So there is a suggestion that not all of this stuff was absolutely done by him right? but quite a lot of it was. I mean he has a serious claim to be called the soundtrack of all of our youths, all of us in our kind of 30s and 40s
1: Incredible. I mean, I've just been transported again. You've managed to, you've done it again, Tom. I <laughs> yeah, you love were on your dad's nostalgia. sofa, weren't
0: you, in, uh, yeah, last year? And now you've just got back from school and you're watching Philip Schofield and Gordon the Gopher.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely i mean inspector gadget i used to love i loved inspector gadget i did love rainbow bright as well yeah i i, I don't think I, <laughs> you, you probably it, didn't but, uh,
0: <laughs> but they are you know they're and they're not bad a lot of these no. a lot of these scores i mean some of them were really kind of orchestral and epic i mean i'll just this because this will this will send some of our sort of people in their late 30s early 40s completely nuts this is the his epic score for the mysterious cities of gold which is Kind of electronica orchestral kind of bark in madness. <laughs> Shuki Levy, this year's unsung hero of music. You've started something now. <laughs> it's going to have to be every year, isn't it? It We're is not it have to find somebody. But he, yeah, he is the soundtrack of the youth of anybody who was. In the broom cupboard with Philip Schofield.
1: Oh dear! What an yeah. excellent way to end. I thought it. You kind might of sums like up this episode. <laughs> a little bit unsavoury, but also a lot of nostalgia <laughs> and joy. And yes,
0: absolutely. So there we go, Shuki <laughs> Levy. We salute you. Uh, well done. He's got, I, I, he has got some sort of record for the number of uh, little music cues that his name is attached to, and it, I think it was over three thousand.
1: Wow, yeah. that's impressive, Shuki Levy. We salute, we salute you. you
0: from our from our position on the sofa, still in our school uniform. We
1: salute you. <laughs> we <do>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what an episode! It has
0: been good, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> it. I hope you managed to stick with it. You oh, probably had to do it in two two or three halves. Yeah, <laughs> parts. I, I,
0: I feel we may have shown our age a little bit with one or two of our items as well. well. we us talk of letter writing and and you know, He Man and. Inspector Gadget, I think we're, we're officially old, aren't we?
1: I Yeah, uh, we are. <laughs> Sadly, that There's is the case. No
0: getting away from it, but never no. mind. Happy Christmas, Emma.
1: Yeah, happy Christmas, Tom, and happy Christmas to you, lovely listener.
0: Yes, thanks for, lovely listener, yeah. <laughs> There's only one <laughs> oh,
1: left. Oh, <laughs> um, I know, I just feel like I'm talking to them directly.
0: I see, yeah, that is a radio thing, isn't it? It's not that they've all deserted us.
1: no. <laughs> Please don't Lovely desert us. Please, please go back. Please
0: don't desert us. Yeah, there we go. Have a fantastic Christmas. Uh, the If you've not listened to the Advent calendar, have a good old listen because it will disappear uh, in the new year because it's clogging up the feed a little bit. Yeah. Normal service. We'll be back with something serious and very academic after Christmas.
1: Merry Christmas and a happy new year to you
0: all. <laughs> You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emero Duha and Tom Breeze. A special Merry Christmas to our studio support team, Rhys Evans, Jamie Hicks, Peter Lamben, Caitlin Meredith and Ethan Walsh. Podcast artwork is by Beth Lanford, and the music is by Cameron Stewart. The studio manager is Adrian Rapps. Normal service will be resumed after Christmas. Until then, take care, enjoy teaching and Merry Christmas.